Oftentimes, we love discussing the Oscars and say, what's the greatest miscarriage of justice? People love saying, all right, what should have won Best Picture that did? You know, Ordinary People of a Raging Bull, Dances with Wolves over Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction losing a Forrest Gump. Oh, my goodness. Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. What do you say to those critics who say, listen, Jerry Bruckheimer's movies make a ton of money, but they lack the substance and quality of classic cinema? No, I make movies for audiences, for popular culture. Same person who likes my dinner with Andre is not going to like Pirates of the Caribbean. It's thrilled to have Jeremy Renner with us. Is there any kind of friendly competitiveness on set with you guys? Cinephile. I think yeah, there's this more uh, suit envy. The great and lovely and talented Jessica Alba is here with us in the studio. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for having me. The great Richard Lewis is joining us. At what point did you find that voice? Did you realize you could channel all this pain into humor and be the Prince of Pain? I was about five hours old, and I was being put down by my family. Cinephile. Does Adnan Virk look like the undercover CIA agent who saves James Bond by killing a crime boss's henchman, smiles wide, extends his hand, and says to 007, Welcome to Tangier. Cinephile, the Adnan Virk movie podcast. As our buddy Adam Amin said, an intense open here on Cinephile. Uh, this is a corrosively humorous drama of festering injustice, Shakespearean rage, grave reckoning, and imperfect redemption, which unfolds to the epic dimensions of a classic Western showdown. Fox Searchlight has a real ripper on its hands with this one, even if it likely won't be for mainstream tastes. That's David Rooney of the Hollywood Report talking about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, one of the films that I'll be reviewing. That is a great blurb. <clears throat> Gotta read more of David's work. Um, and it's a wonderful film. We'll be talking about that. I also want to mention that open. My favorite part of that is actually the fact Jerry Bruckheimer references My Dinner with Andre. I'm going to guess Dan Stanza, Greek Passmore. Are you guys familiar with My Dinner with Andre? Absolutely not. Okay, so it's a 1981 movie. It's with Walt Sean, and it's directed by Louis Mal. I'm just going to give you the plot synopsis of My Dinner with Andre. Just to the counterpoint that why Bruckheimer would cite that when he's like, oh, the same audiences that like My Dinner with Andre aren't going to like this. This is what My Dinner with Andre is about. Old friends Wallace and Andre haven't seen each other in five years and agree to meet for dinner. Andre, a once well-known theater director, dropped out of the New York scene to travel the world, while Wallace stuck around, finding only mixed success as a playwright. As they sit down to eat, Andre launches into a series of fantastic stories from his time away, and Wallace can't help but notice how different their worldviews have become. That is the antithesis of Brock. So it's just a conversation <laughs> at dinner. <laughs> just two guys catching up. Okay. I mean, my favorite part of the open is still uh, Jessica Elba. Thanks so much for coming by. <laughs> thanks for having me. Uh, thanks to Kathy Leagrand. Uh, nobody can, can match Kathy for her generosity. Got me to Lemoyne College again. Thanks to all the wonderful teachers and students there. Did a uh, keynote address about politics and sports, which is obviously a hot topic right now, the NFL players and the protests and such. Second question of the question and answer was about our friend Jamel Hill. Shout out Jamel. I think I, uh, I think I handled it well. I think I, I showed Jamel in a good light. If not, I'll get back to her. You can tweet her. She'll let me know. Uh, but thanks to all the students that showed up there. I got to talk to Mark Stanzik, Dan's dad. Unfortunately, could not make the tight time window we were on. Didn't get any pizza, but drove around. I got, I got more of a taste of Syracuse this time. I can see how it's, it is hard bitten. It is a working class town. Uh, I did mention to Kathy how shocked I am that Dan is the only one I know who is one of six. And she goes, well, it's a very Irish Catholic thing, which is funny because watching, <laughs> This movie, Lady Bird, which I'll get to in a second. At one point, the character, Lucas Hedges, who's from Manchester by the Sea, 
uh, when uh, Lady Bird, Saoirse Ronan, sees him at the supermarket. She goes, those are all your siblings? He goes, yeah, yeah, it's a big family. He goes, Irish Catholic. He's like, it's, it's tough to find someone to marry who's not my cousin. So, Irish Catholic thing. Dan Stanzik, one of six. No, no it is. It's a thing. <laughs> also performing Lady Bird. And thanks to all the... Um, Professors, like I said, who had me in the classes, um, Elliot and Dan and Brian and Julie and Nick, and it was so much fun. Uh, by the way, Julie and, and Julie Grossman uh, also appreciated the fact, and Phil Novak did, her husband, the Age of Innocence review. So that is two more votes who enjoyed the Age of Innocence recap. So that makes me feel a little bit better. Although Stanzik, Simon, uh, I think my friend Cab, by the way, shout out to my friend Cab. Check out his podcast. He's the best. He always listens to mine. So check out uh, Cabby Presents, the podcast. Always hilarious, always entertaining. He didn't necessarily say he disliked the Age of Innocence review. He just thought it was, I recapped the entire story, so now he feels no reason to ever watch it. Not that he'd be into period dramas. Uh, but thanks, as always, for those who listened last time, and who will continue to listen. We've got a great podcast today. John Ridley, the Academy Award-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave, is coming up. His new film is called Let It Fall. It had a brief theatrical release earlier this year. Uh, it's now available on Netflix and other forms, and it's about the Rodney King riots and what happened with Reginald Denny. And all of that stuff that happened in Los Angeles in the early 1990s. It's an excellent companion piece uh, to the OJ documentary done by Ezra Edelman, which, of course, won the Academy Award. So I've seen the documentary. We'll talk to John about that. And the big one, Margot Robbie, who is the star of her new film, I, Tanya. I've seen the film, but I've got so many movies to review. It's not coming out until, I think, December 8th. So I will leave the review of I, Tanya until the next podcast of Cinephile. Uh, but Margot obviously is a huge star. And ask her about the film, Wolf of Wall Street, Marty's stories, and away we go. By the way, we did a quiz recently on Cinefy. I just want to follow up with Dan. How many people ended up getting the quiz correct? When did we do the quiz? It feels like it was months ago. I think it was last month. We didn't revisit it in the last podcast. It was two podcasts ago. I want to say not many. Maybe so we, three to five. All right. So we've kind of found out what... Remember, because before you did one that was very difficult, then we did one that was very easy, and now this one, kind of in the middle. Yeah, this one, I think it was probably too difficult. Maybe no one's listening anymore. I don't know. <laughs> also an option. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. The Oscar race officially beginning with this film. It is the best movie I've seen so far of 2017. I recommend all of you to see it. It features Frances McDormand in fine, rip-roaring form. She plays Mildred Hayes. Of course, a character like that would be named Mildred Hayes. Growing up outside Ebbing, Missouri, and she wants justice because her daughter, Angela, was murdered and raped while she was dying, which is one of the things she puts in the three billboards that she pays a lot of money to put outside of Ebbing, Missouri. And the three billboards are essentially her way of just dropping a meteor on the police department because she's saying, still no answers to what happened to my daughter, and she obviously decides to take the situation public. So the police chief, played by Woody Harrelson, Immediately goes to talk to Mildred, says, all right, listen, nice little stunt here. Like, obviously, we are doing our best trying to find your daughter's killer. But obviously, that's not good enough for Mildred. And the police sergeant, played by Woody Harrelson, has some own issues of his own, which Mildred couldn't care less about. He's dealing with his own health problems. And I think what is first notable about this movie is that in a lesser film, Chief Willoughby, played by Woody Harrelson, would be the immediate villain. You know, the story, you think, oh, it's very timely. It's about um, politics and... um, people's frustration with law enforcement right now. So this is a woman uh, who's grieving the death of her daughter. And, of course, the cops are bad. The cops don't care. And they're all white. And they eat donuts. And it's the Midwest, et cetera. But it actually is not the case. And part of that is 
The great writing and the wonderful script by Martin McDonough. I predict it's going to win the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. That's how good the script is. McDonough wrote The Brilliant in Bruges, which he was nominated for an Oscar for, and also Seven Psychopaths, which was a mixed bag for me, but because I like, you know, gutter poetry. I mean, he's very much in the mold of Mamet in that he um, really thrives in terms of making very flowery dialogue, which is rather profane, and it comes from, as Mamet would say, a bunch of deadbeats. Uh, but in McDonough's view... Willoughby is not the guy who is who is going to be everyone's going to look at. And then the other character you say could be the villain ends up being Sam Rockwell in the performance of his career. I think he's long been an underrated actor. Stunned to find out Sam Rockwell's 49 years old. Breakthrough movie was the George Clooney film, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. For years, he's been excellent, and he's a really good character actor. And I think this time he may win an Oscar. Currently, by the way, on goldderby.com, you can check out all my Oscar picks. Defoe and Rockwell are neck and neck for supporting actors. So one of these guys is going to win the Oscar. And he is tremendous. Rockwell plays one of the police uh, officers who's a lackey, basically, of Chief Willoughby. He's dumb. He's incredibly violent. He's a huge redneck. He's a laughingstock that lives with his mother. And it's a credit to Rockwell's acting that he takes all of that. And he very early on, he's a character that's easy to despise and to make fun of. And he actually ends up giving that character a lot of depth and humanity. And he goes from a mama's boy who's a racist to you say, I mean, how, how challenging is that for an actor? Like, I mean, there's no way the audience is going to root for me. And somehow he finds the core of humanity with this guy. And I don't know if you root for him necessarily, but you at least feel some sympathy and realize that he does have um, some positives within him. So the story is about Mildred seeking justice. It's about Chief Willoughby and his own personal issues. It's about Sam Rockwell's character uh, in his own personal awakening. And McDonough pulls it all together. And it's amazing that he's able to do it because it's, it's a powerful film. It's audacious. It's very violent. Um, and he does not shy away from the violence that, that occurs in these types of areas. And I thought it was very authentic in terms of uh, that lifestyle. You know, even there's a small character. Peter Dinklage shows up in the movie. And um, he's interested in Frances McDormand. And one time he says to her, you know, I- I'm a midget who sells cars and drinks too much. Like, I know that. Like, he has such humanity in a small role. Um, but it's an example that with McDonough's writing, every character gets a chance to showcase their skills. Like every character is important. Clark Peters, who plays the new black sergeant, he's got a couple of good scenes which showcase uh, his conviction. John Hawks, who was a really good actor, he was um, in the movie The Sessions with Helen Hunt. He plays Mildred's ex-husband, who's now dating a 19-year-old girl. One of the few flaws of the movie, I was like, I don't think like it's 55-year-old divorce guys getting this 19-year-old girl. But perhaps I'm not from Ebbing, Missouri. Maybe it does occur there. Uh, but again, his character shows that you know he's dealing with the same pain that Mildred is dealing with. He's just doing it in in a different manner. Um, and again, just to go back to Rockwell, this is from our buddy Owen Gleiberman of Variety. Rockwell is a revelation. As Dixon, a racist cop who's a loser, a mama's boy, and a violent flake, he gives a high wire performance, daring to make himself gnarly and dislikable, only to undergo a transformation that the actor, mining his moonstruck ability to win laughs in even the most disturbing situations, makes spiritually convincing. And as Owen points out, the humor of the movie, it's very dark humor. As I mentioned, it is a serious story, but there is a lot of surprisingly big laughs uh, within the movie, and I really recommend it. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Frances McDormand, it's her best performance uh, since Fargo. Currently, she's the leader to win Best Actress. I think she will win the Oscar for Best Actress. She's amazing in it. She's long been a great actress, and this is a role that she really sinks her teeth into um, and it's wonderful. It is darkly comedic, but I encourage all of you to check it out. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Anything, Danny? 
Yeah, one, how many Maple Leafs, and two, I think you you projected like seven Oscars for this film to win. So if you could narrow that down <laughs> to which ones you actually think are going to be winners, maybe you don't have to do that today. No, I no, guess you right do now. that later. But four Maple Leafs is what I'm giving it. It's the best movie I've seen so far of 2017. McDormand, I'll give you nominations. McDormand. Yeah, that's it. you gave out like seven of those, but then yeah, you yeah. said they're the projected winner as well. So sure, you got I'll best you- original screenplay, you got best supporting actor, best actress, and best picture. So that's at least four. So the nominations, those four, plus I think outside chance of, well, actually a good chance of best director, so that's five, and then maybe like, you know, production design or something along those lines. So I would say five or six nominations. I think it's the favorite to win screenplay. I think McDormand's the favorite to an actress, and Rockwell's neck and neck with Defoe. So six nominations, two Oscars. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Good to see Michael J. Fox, by the way, back on Curb. Great cameo. The next film I'm reviewing is called Coco. It is another stunner from Pixar. Stop me if you heard this before. Somehow they take these stories and they make them original, they make them vibrant, and Coco is no exception. I don't think it's upper-tier Pixar. I don't think it's quite up Pixar. I don't think it's quite Toy Story 3 Pixar for Dan, uh, but it's still a great film. I'm giving it for me, beliefs. I encourage everyone to go check it out. Um, and I do it for a variety of reasons. One is I like the fact that they're really appreciating and paying homage to Mexican culture, which often on the big screen you do not see. Too often uh, Mexicans are derided and stereotyped, and in this movie you really get a sense of what their community is like, um, the importance of music and how that can be so important and transformative, and the importance of family. And that's really what this is about. Coco ostensibly is about a story about a kid named Miguel who loves playing the guitar, and he wants to find out more about his idol, Ernesto de la Cruz, who is voiced by uh, Benjamin Bratt. But his family has a ban on music. They think it's, you know, the devil's music. It's not going to happen. It doesn't help them out. Um, and that's why he's, he's kept away from it. So, again, the story becomes universal because all of us have been a part of families and have parents told us, well, no, you can't do that. That's not good for you, whatever it is. So he's this aspiring musician who's confronted with his family's ancestral ban on music, and he's trying to find out exactly why. It should be noted, went with the entire family. Shaz De Niro, now one, wanted to crawl at some points. So the first 20 or 30 minutes, I was listening, but I was not actively watching, uh, careful of him. Shout out to Plainville, the reclining seats. So I, I, I did miss as exactly how Miguel at some point now is in the other world. So I was like, okay, spoiler alert, he, he somehow goes back to the land of the dead. And by the way, the story is about the Day of the Dead, which is um, celebrated in Mexico. So once he's goes to the land of the dead, now I feel like I'm in Beetlejuice. I'm like, wait, how did he... He's now with a bunch of skeletons. If you've seen the trailer, that, this is where the story takes place. It's with all these dead people. So he's hanging out with a bunch of skeletons. So I, my wife, after explaining to me, it's a very clear-cut plot point. I think if you're watching the movie, you'll be okay. But I was confused as to what exactly happened. But he's now in the land of the dead. He's dealing with all of his dead ancestors. So they're all saying, who are you? Okay, oh, I'm Miguel. Oh, I'm your great-great-grandfather. I'm your great-grandmother, et cetera. Uh, but then the story goes from there. But it's it's amazing, again, how Pixar, you know, these movies take years and years to make. Like The, the amount of attention to detail they take. It's incredible, but it's a wonderful story, and it's sweet, and it's charming. And the song, Remember Me, speaking of Oscars, is my prediction. It's going to win the best song. It's a beautiful song, and they use it. Again, Pixar, they sneak up on you. You don't know how they do it, but with 20 minutes to go, you got a lump in your throat. And have this happen, and somehow the magicians do it at Pixar. So I think it's going to win best song. I think it's the favorite to win best animated feature. Although our friend Mike Benzani, who you're going to hear a little bit later on, Bonds is going to give a guest review of Thor. Him and his girlfriend saw a film called Loving Vincent, which apparently is supposed to be awesome. So that's actually the runner-up right now for Best Animated Movie. So I think Coco wins. Uh, it's a sweet movie, and I like the fact it's showing a side of culture that you normally don't see. And I think it's true to those roots. Um, before it opened in America, it opened in Mexico. It's already the highest-grossing movie ever in Mexico. Like within one month, box office off the charts. So it's nice to see uh, their culture and the appreciation for Coco, which I'm giving for Maple Leafs. 
Also want to talk about Lady Bird. So this movie, A.O. Scott, you got to read his review because he, he gave it like, it sounds like it's the greatest film since The Godfather. And my friend Claire Atkins sent me the review, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's, it's, it's a, a tr- transformative. It's life-affirming watching this film. And Lady Bird has now set a record. It is the best-reviewed movie in the history of Rotten Tomatoes. It is at a perfect 100%. Besting Dan Stanzik's film, Toy Story. So, I don't know if it was Toy Story 1 or Toy Story 2, Toy Story 3. Three. Toy Story 3 was at 99%. Get Out, which came out earlier this year, by the way, was at 98%. So 100% right now for Lady Bird. Think about those expectations. Right now you're going to see this movie going, okay, 100%. Every single critic in the world is saying this is a great film. And you know what? It is a great film. It's one of the best mother-daughter stories I've ever seen. I'm calling nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, maybe for Greta Gerwig, who also wrote the script. I think she'll get nominated for the script for original screenplay. I think it'll lose to McDonough for three billboards. But I think it's also going to get nominated for Best Actress for Saoirse Ronan. And right now, she's the favorite to win Best Supporting Actress, Lori Metcalf, Metcalf, who knocks it out of the park. You know her from Roseanne. And she plays the long-suffering, hard-working mother of Lady Bird. And one of the many things that is shocking about this story is it ends up being a love letter to Sacramento. I don't think Sacramento's ever been shown on the big screen. But this is really um, Greta Gerwig, where she grew up. Of course, she's an actress. Now this is her writing, directing debut. She wanted to pay homage and, and give this Valentine to the city. So it's a, I've never seen so much Sacramento in my life. And, in fact, Lady Bird dislikes Sacramento, the main character played by Saoirse Ronan. She calls it the Midwest of California, which if you know any Californians, they go, yeah, exactly. And when she wants to go to Davis, her mother's pushing her there. It's, it's known for its agricultural college. Everyone's like, yeah, that's Cowtown. Who the hell wants to go there? So I, I did think it was accurate in its details, doing a little bit about California. Um, but it's really smart, and it's witty, and it's funny. And the first scene immediately sets pace. It's just mother and daughter bickering. And maybe there's been stories like this before. Of course, there have been but about mothers and daughters. But I thought it was just bang on in terms of its depiction with all the characters because I had such sympathy for all of them. I can relate to Lady Bird, who is this high school girl who just doesn't want to hear her mom always complaining about how little money they have. And now that they can't afford the things that our friends can afford. And sorry, they live in a shack in Sacramento and all of our other friends are rich. But we're going to do this. And your dad lost his job. And your dad's battling depression, which you didn't know about. So I get it. I get it from the, from the from Lady Bird's point of view. Like, Mom, just leave me alone. Like, at one point, her mother is upset with her for the fact she doesn't just, you know, look after herself. Like, pick up her clothes. And it's like, you know, how, how many of us could just say, like, yeah, how many of us can relate to just telling our parents, back off, I'll get around to it. But then Lori Metcalf's point is clear. She goes, listen. Your father's out of work right now. When you go to school, everyone knows that we don't make as much money as all of your friends' parents, and your friends' parents could give your dad a job. So when you show up with like a rumpled skirt in your Catholic high school, that gives a bad impression of us. Now, either that's a mother who is as genuine logic, or she's just using that to get her daughter to smarten up. But either way, um, you can have sympathy for the mother who is working two shifts, money's tight, everything's tight. Anybody who's ever suffered with money, you watch this movie and you go, yeah, this is what parents are like. The mother's constantly worried. Can we afford this this month? Can we get these groceries? That looks a little bit pricey. I've got to worry about Miguel. My other, her other, her brother, by the way, Miguel. The movie never tells you, but I assume he's adopted. And one scene when, when Lady Bird is complaining about her mom, Miguel's girlfriend says to Lady Bird, you know, your mom has a big heart. Like, yeah, she can be tough. I get it. But, like, she took me in after our parents, my parents kicked me out because of the whole premarital sex thing. You get the sense they're very, very Catholic. I used to go to a Catholic school, and her parents are very religious. And I'm like, exactly. Like, fine. Lori Metcalf's complaining for a good reason. When, when people are always haranguing about money all the time, they're doing it because they got mouths to feed. And she adopted this kid, and very clearly is now adopted his girlfriend just to look after them. So 
again, you have sympathy for all these characters. You have sympathy for the father, who Tracy Letts, the, the playwright, who has lost his job. He's very quiet. As Laurie Metcalf says endlessly, you know, your dad always gets to play the nice guy. He just plays the nice guy and is quiet. I'm the one who's working. I'm the one who has to take all the heat. I know you hate me all the time. But what about him? What does it feel like to be him? And you, you there's a, a scene where he's going for a job. Any man who's been out of work knows how, especially if you're a middle-aged man, knows how emasculating it is trying to go get a job with a younger workforce. Like, you feel for these people. Whenever somebody's 50-plus, they lose their job, immediately my heart goes out to them because I go, I don't know how, how you're going to get a job now. The workforce is always younger. It's always more progressive. Um, and you feel like they look at you as a dinosaur. And the, that scene where he goes for this job interview, he's got the suit and tie, he's trying to relate to this guy. It's like, it, it breaks your heart because you know how difficult it must be for all these people. Um, and again, you have sympathy for Miguel, her brother, what he's going through. You have sympathy for her best friends. Um, you have sympathy for the boyfriend. Lucas Hedges from Manchester by the Sea plays a character who has the affections of Lady Bird. But then there's a plot reveal what he has his own issues. So I just thought it was a really smart, well-crafted movie. I can understand why the critics are raving about it. I think it's going to do really well with the awards circuit. Um, like I said, Metcalf certainly powerful performance. There's one scene at the end at the airport. If she wins the Oscar, they'll show that clip at the airport because it's it's a real beauty and it's tough not to get uh, emotional about it. So congrats to Lady Bird. I feel like, again, with Age of Innocence, this is not really our audience, but they're not necessarily keen to see a story about a daughter and her mother. But I'm telling you, it's worth a watch. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. This is the four Maple Leafs in a file, right? Everything, Hollywood waits for the last five weeks of the year, then everybody that comes out is great. So I'm giving another four Maple Leaf review. That is for the film Lady Bird. Okay, so those are some of the films that I've seen. Obviously, I'm raving about all of them. And last but certainly not least is Thor, which I saw. I enjoyed it. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. I think it's a fun comic book picture. It's obviously been well-reviewed. You hear people saying it's the best Marvel movie ever. But honestly, I see the floor to my man Mike Benzani. Bonds and I went and saw it together. Bonds is a terrific guy, senior researcher here at ESPN. We become fast friends because I work on baseball tonight. We've seen a few movies together. We saw The Walk together. Uh, we saw Sausage Party. Sausage Party together. We saw Love and Mercy together. <laughs> Sausage Party. We were in that uh, Williamsport Little League World Series. Dallas great. Brayton, high recommendation. So honestly, Bonds knows this terrain much better than I do. So we are doing the guest review. Mike Benzani, take it away. Your thoughts on Thor. You have agonized over this. Sarah Lang's fellow researcher and friend said that you are like F. Scott Fitzgerald writing The Great Gatsby. <laughs> well, not like him writing it. I, I agonized over every word. Because it was very self-aggrandizing. Yeah, oh, no. Yeah. Trust me. I'm not just some guy thinking he's Fitzgerald walking in writing Gatsby. So no, no, Bonds, I agonized. Thor Ragnarok. Floor is yours. So on the surface, Thor Ragnarok begins like any other superhero movie. The muscle-bound, smiling protagonist confidently smashes whatever cannon fodder serves as the opening villain and returns home the conquering champion. But things quickly take a turn, and Thor jumps off the cliché track in a most delightful way. Without giving too much away, Thor finds himself powerless and enslaved in an alien world, and he embarks on an introspective journey of self-discovery and a deep examination of his moral code. Thor loses everything, his home, his family, his power, but he realizes that, he realizes that sometimes we, we must be torn down so we can be built back up as something better, stronger, wiser, and more compassionate. With incredible performances from Chris Hemsworth, Kate Blanchett, Mark Ruffalo, Tessa Thompson, and the inimitable Jeff Goldblum, Thor Ragnarok breathes a new life into a stale genre and should give fans a lot of hope for Marvel's upcoming offerings. It's smart, it's funny, it's beautiful, and it's powered by an incredible soundtrack. It's a saga of one man's quest for enlightenment masquerading as a superhero movie. Yeah! <laughs> Fuck! Nailed it! Was that good? 
You were right. He was okay. right. He thought he might need two takes. That was one take. You crushed it. Uh, yeah, it's some a little bit, but whatever. The it's best fine. part of the review, inimitable Jeff yeah, Goldblum. Inimitable. I immediately turned to it. I said, this is going to be the best <laughs> part of the movie. Jeff Goldblum is down in the movie. They could have made a yeah. three-hour Thor movie if it's all Goldblum. It, it, he's it got blue so fingernails. Good. He's yeah. got blue like yeah. eyeliner. He does. He has, a, he has, a, he has a weird staff that melts people. <laughs> How shocking, by the way, Kate Blanchett in, is in Thor. Like, I don't know if you knew that going in. I did, certainly did not know that. I'm a- I, I knew it because I'm a nerd, but um, her performance is incredible. Like, she's just so it, – it's it's not Blanchettian. Is that an adjective? Yeah, I yeah, hope yeah, it yeah. is. But in that, like, she's not that, like, serious. She has moments of comedy. She has right. kind of almost human moments that I think yeah. add a lot to it. Um, but she's also an incredible villain. Right. And she She can do anything. What was your favorite part of Thor? Ah, uh, my favorite part of Thor was when Thor saw Hulk for the first time. That's what was mine, yeah. too. Because yes. <laughs> basically, Goldblum pits them against each other, and he does yeah. not tell him Hulk is coming. He just says, this is enemy. If you can beat him, you get uh, free. Yeah. And then also he sees Hulk, and the whole crowd goes nuts. He's like, yes, yes. that's my buddy. <laughs> like, Hulk, all right. That was the best. And then just the crowd goes silent. They're like, yeah. what is going on? It's incredible. Great fight yeah. scene, Thor and oh, Hulk. So good. Yeah. Maybe as good as Atomic Blonde, which stands exhausted. Speaking of great fight scenes in yeah. the year. Thanks for going so, by, oh, Of course. My and pleasure. also, you love Age of Innocence. You like the recap. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm, I got to watch it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my girlfriend watch it with me, which I'm very excited Shout about. Shout out to Katie. Thanks, Katie. Bonds. Thank you very much. And joining us now in Cinefile is Margot Robbie. Her new film, I, Tanya, coming out in theaters in December, and I had the joy of watching it. Margot, thanks so much for coming on Cinefile today. Thank you for having me. You know, it's amazing. As a sportscaster, I remember the, the story vividly with what happened with Tanya Harding. And you're the last person I would expect to play that role. And the, the best compliment I can pay you when I'm watching it, because I think of Tanya Harding, and as the movie points out, they think of her as short or dumpy or she's not as beautiful or pretty in, in the images of Nancy Kerrigan. And you yourself, of course, very tall, beautiful actress, Australian. I wouldn't expect you to play Tanya Harding. What was it like for you? Did you have any of those reservations, knowing that people like me may have these uh, misperceptions about Tanya Harding and someone like yourself playing her? No, I mean, it... I mean, first and foremost, Tonya, I think, was very unfairly spoken about in the looks department. She's an athlete. She was never meant to be a model. And I think what she did uh, kind of got left on the wayside in, in, in light of the whole incident. But she wasn't a tremendous athlete. I guess I was most worried about convincing audience members that I could also seem like an Olympic-level athlete. Um, I, I did months and months of training, of course, but even if I had 10 years to train, I, I could never possibly skate like an Olympic-level athlete. So um, that was my biggest fear uh, on the physical side. Uh, the rest of it, like with any character, I, it's you have amazing people to work with, amazing people who can do crazy things with hair and makeup and costumes. And the idea was more to embody the spirit of Tonya. That's what was important to the fact that we handmade all the costumes the way her costumes were handmade all the makeup that our makeup designer used she bought really cheap at a strip mall nothing was you know designer makeup it had to be something that Tonya could have physically bought herself in the 80s the hair the 80s perm was amazing and great fun and we adjusted the hairline with the wig so that you know my face shape changed slightly so there's a lot of tricks you can do like that and a lot of it did help me feel more like the character and uh, definitely embody the spirit of Tanya and also, you know, the 80s, the 90s, a different time period. No question. It's a very physical role. You know, I'm 
Canadian. Canadians, by nature, I think, like figure skating, and I covered it for a couple of weeks at one tournament in particular. So I remember watching it, and I'm, I'm probably one of the few that can actually discern the difference between a sal cow and a triple axle and a triple lutz. But that, that, that whole world, Margo, is a different world, isn't it? People don't appreciate how tough and how physical and challenging that is, and I'm sure you got a taste of that in your research. Totally. I mean, it's such a hard sport, and I, I think I even underestimated how difficult it would be when I started training. I said, okay, I'll, I'll need like a couple months, sure, but I'll pick it up quite quickly. And I mean, it's such a hard sport, and it's really painful. I mean, I played ice hockey a little bit when I first came to America, and this was way more painful than that because you've got no padding on. You've got the toe pick there to trip you up. Um, but, but falling on the ice with no padding, it's brutal, and, and the the sheer raw power and strength it takes to pull off these moves, moves is unbelievable. I mean, what, what, these, what these athletes do is incredible, and that's why it was so important to us to film these skating sequences on the ice. I mean, a lot of the time when you see it in, on TV and competitions and things, it's you know through a long lens or a, st- a static shot from a camera on the side of the rink, and in that way it's seen as being very graceful, and, and it's real art to make it look so effortless. But when you're on the ice... Um, like a few feet away from a razor sharp blade flying towards camera. I mean, you really, it's exhilarating to watch and you understand the raw power and, and, and how tough this sport is. Um, how much did you talk? I understand you talked to Tanya Harding before the filming started. How'd that conversation go? It was great. She was incredibly understanding about what we set out to do. I mean, I didn't want to meet her until right before we started shooting because I wanted to have uh, prepped my character and decided exactly how I was going to play the character before meeting her. I, she wasn't a consultant on set. She didn't get a say in the script um, or anything like that. So all things considered, she was very understanding uh, that we were setting off to make a movie. And obviously seeing it must have been a, a weird experience for her to, to see the most triumphant and tragic moments of your life, uh, you know, whittled down to two hours on a screen, told in someone else's hands. It must be incredibly difficult, but she was always very understanding. She she understood that she needed to let go and let us do our thing. We told her this isn't a traditional biopic. It's not a documentary. It's a feature film. And I just wanted to let her know I'm playing a character. I'm not trying to replicate you. Um, We we need the liberty on set to, to kind of let these characters grow in their own way as we're filming and we can't sugarcoat anything which we didn't so uh you know when she eventually saw it once we finished um right before we premiered at toronto she said she laughed and she cried and there's obviously moments she doesn't agree with primarily the moments that's told from jeff galuli's point of view in our film um who's played by sebastian stan so uh yeah but she she overall i i think i think she's grateful that her side of the story was finally told we're talking with Margot Robbie right now on Cinephile Itonia coming out in theaters in December. On GoldDerby.com, Margot, I've got you getting nominated for Best Actress and Allison Janney for Best Supporting Actress. Your scenes together are the heart of the movie, and you mentioned the fact that it's brutal at times. I, I would be laughing because it was such droll, uh, dry, deadpan. But like you're, Janney's like the mother from hell. But then, yeah. but then like, I'm laughing because she's just so uh, blunt and, and so ruthless. But then I'm yeah. jolted, right, because the physical abuse is awful to see. It's startling. Mm-hmm. That, that, between you two, but what were those scenes like? Because I thought both of you knocked it out of the park. 
Yeah, Alison describes it well. Alison, Alison says doing her characters like laughing in church, where you can't help but laugh, but then you feel bad about it um, straight afterwards. There's a lot of those moments in our film where you find yourself laughing, but moments later you're kind of hit with the reality of the situation, and it is really confronting, and suddenly the room goes dead silent. You can hear a pin drop. Um, it, it's amazing what Craig, our director, did to manage to pull off a tone so specific, one that dances between the drama and the comedy. And uh, It's a very entertaining film. The violent moments are not entertaining. They are confronting. We didn't want to sugarcoat that and make it seem like something, you know, an issue as serious as this is by any means easy for someone to deal with. So those moments, yeah, it's, it's quite confronting, I think, for, for an audience to watch. Uh, but then, you know, moments later, you find yourself laughing at something else entirely and uh, it's just a wild ride, this film. It really, it's hard to give it a specific genre. It does encompasses encompasses the richness of Tonya's life. There's tragedy, there's hilarity, there's absurdity, there's harsh realism. Um, there's, there's, I think people will be very surprised when they walk out of the theater. And I love the breaking of the fourth wall. I don't know if I laughed mm-hmm. harder than the scene where Allison says, well, I've kind of disappeared from the storyline. Like, what the yeah. hell? Like, <laughs> I just With laughing. the bird on her shoulder. Right, yeah. right. It's just so self-aware. And, and I guess part of that was because when the research, the, the writer spoke to Tanya and spoke to, to Jeff Galuli, they both had such conflicting stories. So you have this unreliable narrator, which is true to life. So everybody has different mm-hmm. stories. Everybody can talk to the camera and tell their story. And the big thing I've noticed, some other critics have noticed this, and I, I definitely noticed it, was the influence of Goodfellas uh, from the jump cuts and then the, the moving camera and the music. Did Craig talk about it? Did he screen Goodfellas with you guys? How much of that movie did you guys talk about? Uh, no, I mean, I think Craig had a lot of touchstones. David O. Russell, Scorsese, of course, um, the Coen brothers. There's a lot of touchstones in this film. And at the end of the day, it wasn't about replicating any specific moment from any other specific film, but knowing that we didn't have the boundaries to, to hold back and try and be one specific thing. It was... A very uh, fluid set. Things would grow organically in the moment. Things would get kind of, they would escalate and, and scenes would get bigger and bigger or, or small moments would be very quick or quiet. Um, I think Craig was, was genius that he didn't hold back or, or let himself be boxed into any specific thing. But uh, yes, I'm sure he's thrilled that people are likening it to, uh, <laughs> to Goodfellas because that's kind of everyone's favorite movie, you know. And I have to ask you the story of Wolf of Wall Street, which, again, you were so great in that film. Please tell us, because I've heard you tell the story to Scott Feinberg on his podcast, but for those who have not heard it, when you first auditioned for Scorsese, Ellen Lewis gave you the call, said, Marty is interested. You're like, who's Marty? And then tell the story about what happened with you and DiCaprio, if you don't mind. Yes, I didn't know that everyone referred to Marty as Marty and not Martin Scorsese, so that took me a minute. Um, and then I quickly gathered that Leo was Leonardo DiCaprio. Here I was, using everyone's full name up until that point. Um, but it was it was a crazy, crazy experience. I mean, I, I jumped off a plane and um, was suddenly in New York City in Ellen Lewis's office, and she took one look at what I was wearing and was like, why are you wearing that? And I was like, I didn't, I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't pack accordingly. I had jeans and like <laughs> flat shoes on. She was like, please try and look a bit like the character. You're going to go to Soho, get the tightest dress and the highest heels, and then you're going to come back and do this audition. I was like, got it. <laughs> so I came back and, um, and yeah, uh, to be in the room with Ellen Lewis, Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio all at once was incredibly overwhelming. But uh, yes, I guess, I guess my nerves bled into my performance a little bit and maybe I got a little overzealous with a particular scene and um, I I smacked Leo in the face 
um, which was not scripted at all. And I had a moment of terror where I thought I was going to be arrested for assault. And instead, they gave me the role. So it turned out well in the end. Yeah. Who was laughing harder after you slapped him, Leo or Scorsese? I don't know. They were tackling. They thought it was hilarious. They were like, do that again. Let's do the scene again and hit him again. <laughs> How about the fact, uh, we're talking with Margot Robbie right now, I, Tanya coming out in December. How about the fact that Wolf of Wall Street, the way Terrence Winter wrote the script, the Duchess is referred to as the most beautiful girl in the world? No pressure, right? Yeah. Hottest blonde ever, I think, was the, was the quote. Uh, yeah, I was... Yeah, every, everyone talks about like, oh, when you transform for a role, I was like, I can't look like this. This is like impossible. But really, it's it it really is about just embodying the character and the attitude of the character. You can if you you can do anything if you say it with conviction. Yeah, and I know that obviously you've acted in soaps before, but what was it like being directed by Scorsese on set? As you said, not being overwhelmed by the moment, working with Leo and all those other great actors. I just never presumed anyone would take notice of my role, so I kind of just went for it and did whatever. Um, felt right in the moment. I, no one knew who I was at the time. No one was expecting me to do anything particularly amazing. So I thought, well, oh, why not? Why not really go for it? When am I ever going to get an opportunity like this before? <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever even get to be in another movie after this. So uh, yeah, Scorsese, like Craig and Itonia, kind of creates one of those atmospheres on set where there's no boundaries. It's it's your character, and you do whatever your character would do in this moment. And if that means doing something really crazy or doing something exceptionally subtle, that that's your choice to make. And um, I, I love working with directors who, who don't give you boundaries like that. They, they create a safe space, and then they let you go wild. It's right. amazing. Now, those scenes with uh, you and Leo, I mean, you could tell what kind of relationship the Duchess had with Jordan, and, and it, she wasn't going to take any crap, no matter what. Yeah. That was the best thing about your character. I just I just read David Ayer was saying about Suicide Squad. He said he regrets the fact he should have made the Joker the main villain in the movie. I know that movie got mixed reviews, Margot, but everybody was unanimous that you were the best part of the film, that you were outstanding as Harley Quinn. And again, I think it's because I just picture that character. I picture you, that big smile on her face. Like, this is somebody who relishes her homicidal tendencies. What was yeah. that movie? That is, but it seems like a fun character to play. Correct me if I'm wrong. What was it like for you? Oh, she's so much fun to play. I love love playing Harley. Um, I kind of never wanted it to end, but yeah, I, 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 again, another brilliant director to work with, and I, and I love that David never, he never directed me differently to any of the guys on set. He never, if, if he was pushing them to a really dark or uncomfortable place, he'd be giving me the exact same piece of direction. I never, he never sugarcoated anything just because I was a girl on the set. Um, you know, these characters are wild and he, he kind of let them go wild, but I loved playing Harley. Um, she's definitely got a lot of attitude as well. I think a lot of the characters I play have, <laughs> have a lot of attitude, but that's why it's so fun. You get to do and say all this stuff that you can't do in real life. It's yeah. the best part of the job. I was about to say, the, that's, that's the joy of acting is you get to immerse yourself in something that you would never be a part of, which exactly. is this ragtag group. Margot Robbie, the star of I, Tonya. I encourage everyone to go check out this film. I think you nailed it when you pointed out the fact that it's very serious subject matter, and I, and I watch, I have such sympathy for Tonya Harding. I had no idea what she went through, the amount of abuse. Uh, but I don't want people to hear that and go, oh, I don't want to see a serious movie, because it's so funny. So I don't know yeah. how you pulled it off, but seriously, it's a very entertaining movie. So congrats to you, and thanks so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Actor Showcase. In my review of The Comedian, I refer to Danny DeVito as an actor who will always give you two things, energy and likability. And my friend Bonds, who you just heard give the review of Thor, loves Danny DeVito. I don't know if he loves him, but he mentioned after the, the previous actor showcase with Gene Hackman, people seem to love us doing these older actors. So 
As my ca- uh, friend Cabot pointed out, I should have mentioned Heist with Gene Hackman. Yes, Mammoth. Uh, DeVito, a big Mammoth guy as well, and he's very good in Heist, although that does not make his top five. Actors showcase Danny DeVito. Tough not to include the TV, but Taxi is, of course, worth a mention. But I'm just going to focus on the movies. And, of course, I know a lot of people love It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Number five is Batman Returns. Polarizing pick, but I thought he was great as the Penguin. He himself said he approached it as a Shakespearean villain. He wanted the character to be nasty and filthy, which is epitomized by the scene in which the guy says to him, not a lot of sun down there, huh? And he's like, yeah, starts laughing. He says, oh, it could be worse. My nose could be gushing blood. Merely bites the guy's nose like a geyser of blood. Burton, when he was doing it, thought DeVito was really going awfully dark with the character. But true to Danny's instincts, he's like, no, no, I want to make this guy really filthy and repugnant. And maybe for some people it was too much because... Uh, depending on who you talk to, they say Catwoman actually stole the film. Michelle Pfeiffer is fabulous, by the way, as a woman who's scorned. But I did really like DeVito's performance. I love the fact he relished the character. You know, I am not a human being. I'm an animal. Oswald Cobblepot. Number five is Batman Returns. Number four is Twins. <laughs> I mean, listen, we're talking iconic 80s comedies here, okay? It's like looking in a mirror, only not. The scene where even they describe the fact that Schwarzenegger's character got all the looks and the brains... <laughs> And the size, and you got all the crap. When you see DeVito's reaction to that news, it's great. He's a scheming huckster. Also an incredible ponytail, compending that he's bald. Just amazing he was able to pull that off. Number four is Twins. Number three is Get Shorty. We've mentioned it before. He's hilarious in the movie. The scenes where Travolta's like giving him scenes to kind of act through, and the way he's being the self-absorbed actor is hilarious. Number two is War of the Roses. It's a small role, but I'm also giving it to because he directed it. It's one of the blackest of comedies. Anytime anybody is hesitant about getting married, I recommend they watch War of the Roses. A very good dark comedy with Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, and DeVito, who's great. One thing I always remembered, he never, he, when he quit smoking, he put the cigarette in a glass case, and this, this marriage just drives him to such distraction. There's once he just breaks the case, just has to have that smoke once again. And number one is Throw Mama from the Train. Yeah, guy. DeVito loves Hitchcock and Strangers on a Train. This is an homage to that classic movie, You Do My Murder, I Do Yours. Crisscross. Throw Mama from the Train, which DeVito not only stars in with Billy Crystal, but also directed. There's lots of homages to Hitchcock, and I loved his performance as Owen, the mama's boy who just gets berated and belittled by Anne Ramsey, who was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress. So memorable was she in the role. The best films of Danny DeVito's career. Throw Mama from the Train is number one. War of the Roses is two. Get Shorty is three. Twins is four. And number five is Batman Returns. Honorable mention of Big Fish, just because we get to see Danny DeVito's bare butt. I can't believe I have anything to add to this, because I didn't think I could even name five movies that he was in. Weird pick by Bonds. Great review, weird pick here. <laughs> uh, but maybe he, maybe you didn't think he was great in it, but L.A. Confidential, yeah, I, great movie. I, I think, think needs a mention. Yeah, but he didn't have nothing memorable, particularly in the rule. He I, doesn't have nothing much memorable in any of the other ones you mentioned either. What are you talking about? You're anti Danny DeVito. That's what we've learned from this experiment. Well, after your review of The Comedian, I'm down on him, yes. <laughs> also love Hoffa, which, of course, he directed... Uh, he co-starred along with Jack Nicholson. That is worthy of a mention as well, because that's a movie that I love, which not many people do. Might as well add that to the list. Danny DeVito, the best films of his career. <laughs> and joined now by Academy Award-winning screenwriter John Ridley, the documentary Let It Fall, very powerful and I think persuasive, and a good reminder of what race relations were like in Los Angeles at that time. John, thanks for coming on Cinephile today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Um, when I go back to those incidents, of course, it feels like they're all um, ingrained in our minds, those images, the Rodney King beating, um, Reginald Denny, 
Um, what was it like for you when you're going back telling the story? Because, of course, you lived through this incident, as we all did, but you have the benefit now of talking to LAPD of that time, uh, talking to citizens of that city of that time. So what was it like for you, literally, just as a filmmaker, when you're capturing those images, the decision at times to slow things down, to show a certain imagery of Kuhn when he's hitting King, et cetera? How did you approach that subject matter? It, it really is reconciling the things that I thought I remember, images, moments that were very potent to me. 25 years ago, obviously, as a much younger person who just moved to Los Angeles, uh, reconciling those with verbatim narratives of individuals who had really lived through the moments that you talked about, Rodney King, Reginald Denny, um, police beatings, but also a 10-year period preceding those events from 1982 to 1992, the changes in Los Angeles. Um, Los Angeles at its best in 1984 with the Olympic Games. Um, Los Angeles uh, at the beginning of the the crack cocaine era. Um, Incidents between police and citizenry when uh, gang violence, uh, as as difficult and as troubling uh, and oppressive as it had been, in the South Central area, when it began to move to other parts of Los Angeles, the reactions, the overreactions of individuals, uh, certain circumstances that people could no longer ignore, all of those things that led up to the moment after the verdict in Simi Valley, when those officers, the four officers uh, who had been accused of assaulting Rodney King were acquitted, the moments, the consequences, the emotions that boiled over back in the South Central area, it was really about taking the time uh, and being patient with the storytelling so that people who did not know anything about that time period could learn certain things. But also, again, those of us who had things ingrained in our, our collective memories could unlearn elements of history and learn them from a much more per- personal perspective. That's well said, John. And I don't, I don't mean to be flippant by saying this, but you know, in, in real estate, they always say location, location, location. The biggest thing I noticed watching your film with the Rodney King trial is, again, location, Simi Valley. For, for those who have not seen the documentary, I thought this was enormous. I, I obviously did not realize this as a kid. I was uh, 14 when the Rodney King incident occurred. Is that if the, if the trial had taken place in Los Angeles, where it should have been, where the, the racial makeup was such that it was reflective of the community, it's a different trial. But you go to Simi Valley, which is like 2% black, and you've got a lot of people here, potential jurors, uh, whose family is with law enforcement or with fires or you know with um, armed forces. Right. It's you know it, it literally it felt like to me it changed the entire complexion of the case. And the prosecutor, I felt so frustrated on his behalf, at knowing that you can almost see the story being taken out of his hands. And the judge, in particular, who was so arrogant about the fact that literally he didn't have to commute, so it was easier for him to have the trial in Simi Valley. It's outrageous. Yeah, you, you, you use a, a word there very interestingly, you know, changes the complexion of the trial. Um, we don't know what the outcome would have been, but can you imagine an outcome similarly if it had least been in an area where the demographics, where the makeup of the jury would allow for people to say, hey, this is, this is a jury that perhaps understands the circumstances um, and still is uh, deciding by what they perceive the facts to be. But for those who've never been to Los Angeles, understand how how vast this area is. To take a trial that um, was about an incident that happened in the Foothill area that reflected emotions and realities in the South Central area, but then move it to Simi Valley, 
Uh, I think for a lot of people, it just felt like there were pieces that were being moved on a a very large chessboard. And it wasn't about people. It wasn't about the realities that, that a lot of folks were living with. It was just about politics and how can we move things around uh, to to make an outcome that was palatable for an administration or for the police department rather than one that was reflective of certain neighborhoods. But even within that, in, in the documentary, there is a um, a juror who we talked to has a very particular story and a very particular connection to elements of what was going on in the trial beyond the facts themselves. Uh, and has to excavate certain emotions in real time. That's very much what the documentary is about. Again, removing things that we think we remember and inserting incredibly personal stories within this history and within this narrative. Talking with John Ridley, the documentary is called Let It Fall. You you mentioned those characters. That juror who um, says he has to kind of undergo his own uh, personal awakening, the fact he discovers that he's 29% black after doing a DNA test and realizes his whole life he's just lived white, um, because it's easier that way. Um, I love the policewoman who, at the time, you know, knew she was gay, had not revealed it to anybody, said that to her partner in a very poignant moment. You know, if I don't uh, make it out of this thing, please call my partner let her know what happened to me. You know, th- those right. stories are the kind of things that you, you get from documentaries you cannot get from feature films. It doesn't matter who it is. And particularly the stories about Reginald Denny, uh, which was such a, a terrible moment, and the one of the police officers who says, it's like in war, that sometimes you, you can't go back to save everybody, and that was one where we couldn't send anybody. You just have to accept it. And it's harrowing to hear, and it's sad to hear, but in some way it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it's one of those things. There's so much about this film that is about choices that people made. And I, even though I was here in Los Angeles at that time period, I was very fortunate that I didn't have to make a choice about how I was going to respond to this verdict. Uh, some people made those choices as regular citizens. Obviously, there were police officers who had to make choices. Uh, the gentleman that you're talking about, Mike Moulin, who was the incident commander in the South Central area, his police officers were outnumbered. Uh, certainly, they were armed, but his concern was if they started shooting, that not only would there be a slaughter, uh, but it would just um, fan the flames of, of this uprising and ordered his officers to pull back from the area. You know, they didn't have riot gear. They didn't have the tools to to try to hold the line. Uh, all they had were their weapons, their sidearms, but he felt like uh, they couldn't start shooting. And then conversely, the individual that you're talking about, the other individual you were speaking about, Lisa Phillips, a uniformed officer who didn't feel as though she could just pull out of that area when people were being beaten or being assaulted. Um, she did carry with her... Uh, a very personal story that she had not shared with other LAPD officers. And at that moment, you know, made the decision to come out because she didn't know that she was going to live through the day. We also have people like Bobby Green and Don Jones, who were just neighborhood individuals, regular people, but saw other people being beaten. And even though they were not of the same race or the same background, uh, they could not sit by and do nothing and risk their own lives to save people like Reginald Denny. Uh, these are incredible stories. And again, with the documentary, we didn't want to just have individuals who were theorizing about what happened, who were intellectualizing about the socioeconomic circumstances of 25 years ago. We wanted to tell the story of the people who lived it, the people who survived it, and did it in their own words. And the emotion that these individuals speak with 25 years later, it's like they're telling stories that happened yesterday. That's how raw 
these emotions are, that's how real these memories are for these individuals. Of the many heartbreaking episodes is the story about the young black girl who dies uh, at the hands of the Korean shopkeeper. This was stunning to me, the amount of uh, race relations between Koreans and blacks. I think too often people say, oh, okay, there's whites and then there's minorities. Well, then all minorities are not created equal. Right. And, and, of course, the, there's a lot of dissension here among Koreans and blacks. For those who have not seen the documentary, please tell that story about what happened to that girl and how that inflamed issues among Korean shopkeepers and young African-Americans. Well, you, you make a very strong point that even now, 2017, almost 2018, we still think of race as being binary, of being black and white. And certainly, as a black person and black people in America, we have our particular grievances. But there is, unfortunately, always spaces for discord and mistrust and misunderstanding uh, between races. And there had been, for a long time in South Central, a lot of friction between uh, the black residents and Korean Americans who came in to serve and, and work in convenience stores in areas that had largely been ignored by larger chain stores. So you had people who were coming in because they, 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 they wanted to do business, but there was a feeling among a lot of black people that Korean Americans were taking advantage, that their prices were too high, that they didn't respect uh, black people, even though that they were working in those areas. So um, very unfortunate. And there was a lot of, uh, against the Korean Americans, there was um, gang violence and there were uh, robberies and beatings and murders. So you had these two communities that had unfortunately been cultivated to mistrust each other, uh, to look at each other as enemies. And the incident you're talking about, there was a young girl, Latasha Harlins, who was in a convenience store, who was getting a, a small bottle of orange juice. And the woman behind the convenience store thought that Latasha was stealing the juice. She tried to stop Latasha. Latasha, at that point, um, physically assaulted the, the convenience store owner. So you have the situation that is just spiraling out of control. And eventually, the woman running the convenience store, her name was Sun Jadu, pulls a gun um, to try to defend herself. But the argument for defense is ameliorated when Latasha Harlan turns to walk away and Soon Jadu fires the gun and, and shoots this 15-year-old girl in the back of the head. So you can imagine now the feelings between the black and the Korean community when uh, the Korean Americans look at Soon Jadu as just defending herself and the black community looks at Soon Jadu as having murdered a young black girl. And this becomes all the more uh, difficult. This incident happened just, I think, four days, if I remember correctly, after the officers who beat Rodney King were arrested. So when tensions are at their highest, uh, Latasha Harlan is shot by a Korean shop owner. And it just becomes all the worse when there is a trial that is held, and it is held in the Los Angeles area. And Soon Jadu is convicted of manslaughter. But the judge in the case sets aside the verdict, which is it's just it's unheard of and basically says whatever the jury decided, I don't care and just gives Soon Jadu um, community service hours and fines her five hundred dollars. That's the environment leading up to the verdict in Simi Valley when these officers are acquitted. So in our story. Uh, in the film, in the documentary, these are the kinds of stories that we excavate. This is the kind of context that we give to the environment 
but also we, we, we talk about this this cascade effect where along the way to the L.A. uprising, there are any number of moments, there are any number of opportunities where perhaps uh, the course of history, the course of events could have been changed, uh, but they, they, they weren't. They were only made worse. You hear about 1990s Los Angeles, and of course you think about O.J. Simpson, and we here at East Penn were very proud of the, of the documentary that won the Academy Award. Uh, what did you think of that film, and were you uh, how conscious of it were you when you were making Let It Fall in terms of um, either paying homage to it or mimicking it or, or borrowing from it or not wanting to have any allusions to it? How much did that go through your thought process, John? It, we were very aware of the film because we were also um, part of the ABC, the Disney family. We were, we were a, a product, uh, literally and figuratively, our, our film Let It Fall, of ABC News. So we were very aware of Ezra's film, and certainly when it came out, you understood that this was a, a game-changing documentary in terms of its scope, of its scale, of its putting race in America, not only in context, but in context of an individual who, by turns, we admired and then abhorred for what I think we all know what happened, but also in terms of our expectations of race and justice in America. So we were very aware of that. Uh, but at the same time, we were never concerned that our story was just going to be a side dish to uh, the O.J. film, because we believe that there and we, we know that there was this whole other dimension of race that led up to. Uh, what uh, people expected from the O.J. Simpson trial, um, what they thought they believed and what they thought they knew. And also, as you said earlier, we wanted to widen the conversation about race in America. And we knew that Let It Fall was not just going to be about black and white and citizens and police, but about the Asian American community, about the Hispanic community, um, about uh, how race is played out in Los Angeles, in, in a city that is meant to be a melting pot, and how it plays out now in America. You know, between the time that our film uh, originally premiered in theaters in April and now, um, you know, Charlottesville has taken place. That, that occurred after our film came out. You know, the conversations about athletes kneeling and um, how some individuals react or overreact or demonize these young men who are taking a knee respectfully to try to call attention to problems that have been around easily, you know, the, the last 25 years uh, for where our, our story begins, but, but certainly going back far, far beyond that, um, these conversations have not gone away. So we never uh, were concerned that we were going to arrive to an environment where uh, the, the conversations that we had to have were going to be any less necessary. Where are places that people can find Let It Fall, John? I hope everyone sees this documentary. Let them know where they can see it. So right now it's playing on Netflix, and it's also on iTunes. So we uh, hope and believe among those streaming platforms, and also I believe on Amazon Prime. Essentially, anywhere that you can stream, you can find Let It Fall. Before I let you go, you won an Academy Award for 12 Years a Slave. Just tell me about that process of, again, taking heavy material in regards to race relations and the American experience uh, collaborating with Steve McQueen and making such a, a powerful film that ended up winning Best Picture? You know, for me, and very fortunately, I, I, I've, I've had a, a long career now. And in this latter phase, a lot of what I've been doing is is trying to take myself and my opinions and my perspective out of the work and really making it about 
the stories of people who've lived through amazing and amazingly difficult circumstances. Certainly with Red Tails, uh, working on a story about the Tuskegee Airmen, I was able to do that. With 12 Years a Slave, Solomon Northup's memoir is an absolutely amazing document. Um, certainly the same is true with Let It Fall, uh, verbatim narratives. But in American Crime and the limited series Gorilla that I worked on, even though those were fictionalized accounts, they were very much based on real narratives that we took the time to sit down with people, to listen, to listen to their stories, and try to put them in a public space. So for me, that's what my storytelling is about now, is really finding a space where we can um, create an apparatus for delivering empathy through real stories. John Ridley, Let It Fall is the Documentary Academy Award-winning screenwriter. Thank you so much for the time on Cinephile, John. We appreciate it, and best of luck with the doc. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. A Scorsese Story. Being at LeMoyne College reminded me of my roots and back when I was at school at Ryerson for Broadcasting, Radio, and Television Arts, and they had us do... Look at this. This is Sports Center commercial homage to that. So it's me and the Lemoyne Dolphin. And I, I'm in the cafeteria and I just asked the Lemoyne Dolphin, how's the sushi? He gives thumbs up and that's it. Hopefully it'll be airing in Lemoyne, if not elsewhere. I can get it on my social media page. But it reminded me when they were up shooting what we used to call EFP. Uh, for any of those listening, I went to film school or TV school, electronic field production. So even now, Rick Passmore has this set up here. It reminds me of EFP here. We've been. We have this lighting set. We have, you know, the way that the students were setting it up. So it reminded me of what Scorsese did back when he was at NYU. So when I had to do my EFP class for my student film, I thought about doing, because this was after Gus Van Sant had done a remake of Psycho Shot for Shot. So when I was 19, 18 years old, or 19 years old, I was going to do a remake of Scorsese's student film. I remember telling my teacher, Billy Nobles, who I'm still in touch with over Twitter. He's now 77, just killing it at life. And he's like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I'm going to remake Scorsese's movie. So The Big Shave is a film that I've seen. I did not actually end up remaking it because that would be a real dearth of creativity. But you've got to see The Big Shave. It's a five-minute student documentary Scorsese did at NYU. And this is all the student film is. It's in black and white. and It's of a young man going in the bathroom, shaving cream on, and he cuts himself and then just repeatedly cuts himself, and the blood just starts flowing. And it's a five-minute movie. This guy just, just – I mean, it really is a good precursor to Scorsese because you see – Again, his interest in violence and the way he depicts it. But it's a five-minute student film of a guy who cuts himself. There's, there's uh, I think, Benny Goodman music. There's jazz music playing. Um, and then he dies. And afterwards, Scorsese said it was his statement of the Vietnam War and his opposition to it. And he felt like that could be something really powerful to communicate uh, when he was a young man at NYU. So I actually still have it on VHS. I'm sure it's available somewhere on DVD. The Big Shave, Martin Scorsese's student film. It's like five minutes and 40 seconds. If you're a real Scorsese file, you've seen it, uh, and you can talk about it as I can, because I remember, still remember seeing it, and I thought it was memorable, and like I said, a good precursor to the rest of his work. Go ahead, Dan. Scorsese file? Are we doing that? Is that a thing? No, what did I say? That's another You said you, you made it a word. If you're a real Scorsese file. I don't know. I guess we can make it a word if you want to, but it sounds... I guess a real Scorsesean? I think that's better. Yeah, it's, it's not great, but it's better. If you're a real Scorsesean, you've seen The Big Shave. Thanks, as always, for listening. Thanks to... Margot Robbie, thanks to John Ridley, thanks to Mike Benzani, uh, Dan Stanzik, Rick Passport, and the entire crew. Of course, now is the time to be watching all the movies that you can. It's like being on adrenaline because everything that's coming out is great right now. So I cannot wait. I have not stopped watching the trailer to The Shape of Water, Guillermo del Toro's new film starring two of my favorite character actors. you got Richard Jenkins and you got Michael freaking Shannon. 
and Sally Jenkins plays the lead role, and it's about a monster, and it's a romantic story. I cannot wait to see this movie. And, of course, Phantom Thread, which I keep watching the trailer about, Daniel Day-Lewis, Paul Thomas Anderson. That is the film of 2017 for me. I've been waiting anxiously ever since they announced it, ever since they announced Daniel Day-Lewis is going to be his final film. The trailer's unbelievable. Like Hitchcock all over the place. Obsession, 1950s England. This guy's a garment designer. It's, it's going to be unbelievable. That doesn't open until Christmas Day. But on the next in a file, Shape of Water, book it. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Ferk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.